Tonight on The Readout. Can I answer the question? You, no, the, you the cannot. General, you have refused to answer the I question. I am answering your question. The how Attorney you General choose, does not decide whether to arrest. How did you choose not to, not to enforce this statute? The marshals on scene. Marshals don't make that decision. They do make the decision of whether to make to an prosecute arrest. prosecute someone? No, they don't. Attorney General Merrick Garland facing the self-righteous indignation of Ted Cancun Cruz and other Republicans today. And new reporting about tension between the FBI and the Justice Department over the Mar-a-Lago raid. Also tonight, CPAC is back, once the home of normie conservatives like Ronald Reagan. It's now nothing more than a clown show, but it, it does reflect the current state of the Republican Party. And from performative to alarming, Republicans in Ron DeSantis' Florida are cracking down on LGBTQ people and moving to cancel the entire Democratic Party. But we begin tonight with a lingering question from the 2016 presidential election. What was going on inside the FBI? Remember, just 11 days before the election, FBI Director James Comey announced that the agency was reopening its investigation into Hillary Clinton, effectively costing her the election. The motivation behind Comey's move seemed to be coming from the FBI's New York field office, which, according to Reuters, had a faction of investigators based in the office known to be hostile to Hillary Clinton. And then there's what they didn't announce, which was, at the same time, they were also investigating the Trump campaign's ties to Russia, a fact that never came out until after Trump was elected and eventually impeached the first time. So the question of what was going on inside the FBI was never fully answered, at least not publicly. But that's not the same. But that same question is coming up again as we're getting new reporting from The Washington Post involving apparent FBI resistance to the August search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate to recover classified documents. The Post reports two senior FBI officials who would be in charge of leading the search resisted the plan to do as too combative, too combative and proposed instead to seek Trump's permission to search his property, according to the four people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe a sensitive investigation. In fact, not only did some FBI agents want to slow down the probe, but some actually wanted to shut down the criminal investigation altogether last June, after Trump's legal team claimed that all classified documents had been turned over, which, as we now know, was proven to be false. While the Post points out that it's not unusual for FBI agents and Justice Department prosecutors to disagree during an investigation about how aggressively to pursue witnesses or other evidence, some of the reasons for resistance seem to relate to fear of career consequences or political repercussions, which are not supposed to be a thing when it comes to federal law enforcement enforcing the law, especially with national security on the line. And what's also concerning is that the investigation is still ongoing, which begs the question, why is this information being leaked at all? And what's going on inside the FBI now? That question is further compounded by the latest action by the current FBI director, Christopher Wray, who is a Trump holdover. And I will say that he has shown some good judgment in the past, calling out white nationalists as the largest domestic terrorist threat facing the country. But that judgment was put into question when he decided to speak out publicly for the first time yesterday on the FBI's belief that COVID-19 most likely originated from a Chinese lab on, of all networks, Fox News, the one network that's almost perfectly set up for conspiracy theorizing. Not only has Fox News been pushing conspiracy theories about COVID this whole time, 
But as we learned from the Dominion voting systems lawsuit, they also knowingly pushed conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. Conspiracy theories that turned out to be dangerous for members of Congress, the vice president, and for our democracy. And literally deadly for members of law enforcement. Which brings me to another shocking national security story. Speaker Kevin McCarthy's decision to selectively provide access to more than 40,000 hours of January 6th security footage. I mean, it was bad enough when he announced that Tucker Carlson, the chief propagandist at Fox, would get it exclusively. I mean, we know what he'll do with it, cherry pick video, to lie to his viewers about January 6th, something he's been doing for two years. But now McCarthy has agreed to provide the highly sensitive videos to the actual people who attacked the Capitol in the first place. Some of the same people who were calling for the hanging of former Vice President Mike Pence and vowing to drag former Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Congresswomen like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez out of the Capitol by their hair. Some of the same people who are associated with extremist groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. How can McCarthy justify giving some of the same people that the FBI director called the most dangerous faction of the country access to information about the security routes of lawmakers, where their safe rooms are, as well as where security cameras are located? I mean, is he deliberately trying to give these people crucial information that they would need to plan another attack and perhaps be more successful? Because if he's not doing that, he sure is doing a great impression of someone who is. For McCarthy, it is just the latest example of him capitulating to the demands of the extremists who dominate his conference. And it comes at the expense of the safety of everyone at the Capitol, lawmakers, staff, Capitol Police. And yet all of these facts that you just heard have not stopped Republicans from continuing to play the victim card with the FBI, despite the fact that all of the evidence shows that the Justice Department and the FBI have bent over backwards for years and years to accommodate Trump and his supporters at every turn. And despite all that accommodation, what you're hearing today is Republicans whinging about how unfair the whole system is to them and what victims they are and trying to spin the truth on its head. Like Senator Josh Hawley, who infamously ran for his life on January 6th after pumping his fist in support of the mob. This morning, in a hearing with Attorney General Merrick Garland, he laid down the victim card. My question is, how often do you overrule FBI field agents for political purposes? I've skimmed that article. It is not, that's not an accurate reflection of what the article says. I approve the decision to seek a search warrant after probable cause was Overruling the FBI agents who did not want to do so. Did you talk about this with the White House? The memorandum does not, that that, um, uh, Washington Post article does not say what you're saying. I'm sorry. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, a member of the Judiciary Committee and, the twi- and a 21, 2021 impeachment manager. And Tracy Walder, former CIA officer and FBI special agent. And Congressman, I do have to go to you first. Uh, I, I, it's kind of stunning to hear Josh Hawley um, attempting to make it sound as if it is Republicans and conservatives and he and all of his fellow members of that committee saying, well, they're the victims. I mean, here's Josh Hawley on January 6th throwing up his, his fist and then running for his life. In what way has law enforcement been unfair to people like him? Uh, Fist boy Josh Hawley is no victim, uh, Joy. Uh, He's someone that encouraged uh, and rooted for the rioters as they 
ransacked the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, but the story that he's referring to is really troubling. And I'll tell you why. It's because it shows that the Trump tactic of creating artificial red lines continues to work. We saw this in 2016 when he said the election was going to be rigged. And guess who was trying to rig the election? The Russians. And what did that do to the Obama administration? It made them hold back on publicly calling out the Russians. During the Mueller investigation, Donald Trump said it would be a red line to look at his finances. And what ended up happening? Mueller held back on looking at his finances. And now when it's so clear that this guy's got, you know, a trove of classified information that the Department of Justice wants to seek, he, Donald Trump is in the heads of FBI agents who are afraid that this would cross some Trump red line and that they would be called out. And so it's essentially letting him win and, and rewarding somebody's bad behavior because you're afraid of the backlash. Thank God Jack Smith and Merrick Garland and the team persisted because what did they ultimately end up finding? Exactly what the evidence showed was going to be there, a trove of highly sensitive classified documents. Right. I mean, I mean, the, and, and there's so much evidence of, of this kind of fear. Right. I mean, just to go through here, what the Washington Post reported about what these FBI agents were afraid of, just what you're saying. Um, FBI agents found ways to make the search less confrontational. Oh, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me start in the beginning here. Prosecutors heard from top FBI officials that some agents were simply afraid. They worried that taking aggressive steps investigating Trump could blemish or even end their careers, according to some people with knowledge of the discussions. One official dubbed it the hangover of Crossfire Hurricane, which was a previous investigation into Russia and Trump's campaign. FBI agents found ways to make the search less confrontational than it otherwise could have been. The search would take place when Trump was in New York, not in Palm Beach. The Secret Service would receive a heads up a few hours before FBI agents arrived. Agents would wear white polo shirts and khakis to cut a lower profile than if they wore traditional blue jackets with FBI insignia. Peter Strzok, who used to be an FBI agent, said the following, in 20 years of working cases involving classified information, I never, not once, encountered prosecutors who wanted to get a search warrant and reluctant, even refusing agents the other way around for sure. And Tracy Walter, I want to bring you in here because the evidence seems to be that if anything, the FBI is a combination of sympathetic to Trump and his supporters or terrified of him and his supporters. Well, I think it's a little bit of both, to be completely honest with you. But I think that these FBI agents have really gotten what the heart of their job is about mixed up, quite frankly, the whole idea of service over self. Your job is to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution of the United States. Trump was given multiple opportunities. He was afforded every single opportunity under the sun to hand over documents. They had plenty of probable cause to believe that he held national security secrets. That's not protecting the American people when you say you are not going to go ahead with a surprise raid, which they had every right to do, because the reality is, is they had reason to believe that this evidence could be destroyed. And when you are sort of standing in the way of that, the head of the Washington field office is standing in the way of that that is sending a very, very clear message that you care about self over service. And I think the FBI has really aligned themselves politically, which is so disturbing to me because I served under two different presidents and I never felt the political sway that I think that some of them are feeling right now. Let me play Ted Cruz, because this is sort of emblematic of the self-owning when they try to make this argument that the FBI somehow buys against Trump and against conservatives. Here's Ted Cruz today in that same hearing that Josh Hawley um, flamed out at. As you know, the FBI raided 
Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. And subsequent to that raid, there have been multiple leaks about what was discovered there, including a photograph of documents that were discovered there. Did, did you know about the leaks the from photo, that raid? The, yeah, the, 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 it, did, it was a leak. The photograph, we didn't, I don't think we, we finished the next part. The, the photograph was a filing in court in response to a motion by Trump. Trump did the filing, and it, it wasn't a leak. It came out because Donald Trump filed a motion, and it came out as a result of that motion. Trump caused those documents, the pictures of the documents to come out. Not Garland, not the DOJ. Go ahead, Congressman. Everything we know about this case is because of Donald Trump. They they extended him courtesies and the benefit of the doubt that no criminal suspect or individual who would have their evidence uh, or possession seized would ever get. They did that for Donald Trump. And, and the only reason that we know about this raid is because Donald Trump tweeted about it or, or truthed uh, about it. And, and the only reason we learned about what they found, anything about what they found, is because he went to court uh, to try and get the documents back. And, and so Donald Trump has initiated every part of these proceedings that has given us any bit of information about what is out there. So this is entirely of Donald Trump's doing, from taking the classified documents uh, to publicizing the fact that the FBI had the crazy idea that they shouldn't be in his basement. Uh, let me let me move on to the other thing, which I think is actually a, in some ways even bigger story. This decision by Kevin McCarthy to hand over that very sensitive information to people who are accused of ransacking, sacking the Capitol and threatening to kill the vice president uh, and other members of Congress and the Speaker of the House. Uh, Barry Loudermilk, the, the person behind this idea, Congressman, is the guy who was giving tours, <laughs> tours to some of the people who wound up ransacking the Capitol. To me, it seems like such an, a blatant security breach and a threat to everyone's lives in the Capitol. Your thoughts on this development? Well, Kevin McCarthy has the title speaker, but he doesn't have the job. And the only way he has the title is because he struck a corrupt bargain with the most extreme members of his conference. And, and so this is just the latest installment payment on that corrupt bargain, which is he has to turn over to Tucker Carlson sensitive security footage uh, that will be selectively pulled out, as you said, to either uh, amplify their conspiracy theories about January 6th or, uh, or and uh, to be uh, a blueprint for any future insurrectionist. So you have this security camera footage in the hands of the proudest boy of all who has, you know, the biggest microphone of all. And that's quite disturbing. But Kevin McCarthy, again, to him, this is just how do I live another day as speaker and what do I have to pay? And, and, and that's what we're you know, living through right now. Uh, Tracy Walder, as somebody who's been in law enforcement, this to me is the equivalent of giving a burglar the security camera footage and saying, now you know where the whole, how the whole house is laid out, baby. If you want to go back in there, here you have the blueprints. But in this case, the burglars ransacked the Capitol and threatened to hang the vice president of the United States and kill the speaker. So this seems to me to be an entire mess of your thoughts. So really, I have kind of two thoughts on that. First of all, as someone who served in Afghanistan, served my country and was in harm's way. I did not risk my life for something like this to happen, to really hand these back over to people to go ahead and potentially raid the Capitol again if whomever they want isn't seated as president. But also the way that I look at this, it, strangely, is actually no different than what Edward Snowden did. If you think about it, you know, he took these documents, these classified documents that laid out blueprints of our satellites, gave them to the media. In this case, it's Tucker Carlson. And then the media selectively 
WHOs, what was out there, then it's a huge breach to our national security. All of these countries know what we have in terms of our capabilities. And the reality is, is if this information is put out there and isn't handled carefully, we could more so than just the Proud Boys be giving this sensitive information to other countries. And that's a huge national security problem. Absolutely. Especially given the affinity of this particular host to Russia. And, you know, God knows what the affinities of some of these, um, you know, insurrectionists are, violent affinities. This sounds like a recipe to, to have it done again and this time to have even greater national security implications. Congressman Eric Swalwell and Tracy Walder, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, thanks but no thanks. The annual gathering of conservatives known as CPAC continues its descent into irrelevance with many of the Republican Party's rising stars choosing to skip this year's event. But real talk, CPAC actually does reflect the current state of the party. The readout continues after this. In case you missed it, the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, got underway today. The annual right-wing confab used to be highly relevant. It helped launch the Ronald Reagan era. He spoke at CPAC more than a dozen times, including its first meeting in 1974, where he outlined his shining city on a hill treatise on America. The once august gathering is now more like the Star Wars cantina, a collection of cast-offs and losers. And, and that is not a diss. We're talking actual losers. This year's keynote speaker at the once prestigious Ronald Reagan dinner is failed Arizona gubernatorial candidate, election denier and governor in her head, Carrie Lake. They'll also hear from noted election losing ex-presidents Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil and Donald Trump. But the pro-insurrection Republican agenda comes with one great big elephant in the room, so to speak. Namely, the lawsuit accusing CPAC's chairman, Max Schlapp, of fondling a male aide who worked on Herschel Walker's losing Senate campaign in Georgia last year. Schlapp denies the allegation, but the scandal has proved, has provided convenient cover for some of the big name no-shows. Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, RNC Chair Ronna Romney McDaniel are all skipping this year's conference, along with potential 2024 Republican presidential hopefuls Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis, and Virginia governor and anti-books activist Glenn Youngkin. The CPAC crowd will, however, hear from the real leaders of the MAC party in Congress, Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, which actually makes sense, since that is the current Republican Party. The party whose new House oversight chair, James Comer, is mad that President Biden's son, Beau, who died of brain cancer eight years ago, was never prosecuted, I guess, for being a Biden. And Matt Gates, who invited an accused murderer to give the Pledge of Allegiance at a Judiciary Committee hearing after insisting on creating a rule for a daily recitation of the pledge. And of course, serial harasser and professional troll Marjorie Taylor Greene, who in what's becoming irregular spot with Sean Hannity, again tried to sell her national divorce plan. We are fed up. We're fed up with Democrat policies. We're fed up with the woke ideology being shoved down our throat. And we're tired of our children being brainwashed into these same ideas. Um, we want our own safe space, and we deserve it. <laughs> Joining me now is David Jolly, former Republican congressman and MSNBC political analyst. I'll bet you never thought you'd hear the word safe space coming out of the mouth of a far-right Republican. But here we are. They need a safe space. They need a, a binky and a safe space. How can we get one for them? <laughs> yeah, you know, 
You know what's remarkable about this, Joy? Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ron DeSantis, all these others who say, you know, families and kids are under attack. You and I have talked about this. It just reflects their, their own insecurity in their parenting. That somehow society has this outsized influence on their ability to raise their kids. It's kind of the biggest safe space plea of all from these <laughs> folks. And so, look, CPAC will be her safe space and it will be among a bunch of uh, crazies. But to your point, there, I think there's this question. There's this real pressing question. It is true that all the other presidential candidates are skipping this and they're going to the more yeah. establishment club for growth retreat. And so people are saying, well, maybe CPAC doesn't have the luster. That might actually still be where exactly the heartbeat of the party and the heartbeat of the movement is. And if we got one thing wrong in 16, I say this collectively as a nation, is that yeah. we underestimated Donald Trump could go straight to the crazy, ignore the establishment and become president. I don't know that we should take that bet again this cycle. I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you think about it. I mean, Mitt Romney, I, you know, I think we're both old enough to remember Mitt Romney in 2016. He he actually wasn't invited to CPAC because he had voted for impeachment, right? Like by 2020, I mean, by 2020, sorry, he wasn't invited because he had voted for impeachment. So 2020, he literally was not, he was disinvited. And actually people, they, they, they feared for his personal safety, um, in 2016, it was Trump who he had canceled. He was like, I'm not going, right? And said, I don't want to be there because you guys are sort of being, you know, cruel to me and not not digging me. And he ends up becoming the nominee. So you're right. It doesn't, it's not yeah. indicative of who's going to get it. I go, I went back. We pulled some of the people who've gotten in before. One, the, the, the little straw poll they do at the end. George W. Bush did win it in 2000. But other than that, you had Jack Kemp in 1993, back in the good old normie days. Gary Bauer won in 1999, man. You know, Ron Paul won it in 2010. It, it, it's, it's a grab bag. Yeah, well, so that's when the conference truly was kind of conservative, if you will. It was the most conservative, and it represented this far right wing of the party. Now it is the angry populist movement and the MAGA movement. And what I'm watching for, Joy, really, this is the biggest opportunity Donald Trump has had since he launched his reelection campaign. And it is to do one thing, to go after Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, and the establishment of Republicans. He's attacked David McIntosh, uh, the leader of the Club for Growth. Look, on the eve of CPAC, Ron DeSantis just rolled out the endorsement of Jeb Bush. Now, if, if Donald Trump is worth his salt as the angry populist leader of MAGA nation, he is going to hang that around Ron DeSantis's neck and do it at CPAC. But we haven't seen that vigor from Donald Trump yet. It'll be curious what, what he does at CPAC this year. Well, you know, it is interesting. You make the point that, you know, he can show up and just sort of own that crowd, which is already his crowd. Let's just be clear. This is already the MAGA crowd. But no one is attempting to sort of walk any of them away from him. You know, I think Nikki Haley might be the only other candidate that's going to show up. They're giving him that platform to himself. It's not like he needs to win those people over. They're already his people, but he could do himself probably some good by showing up, like you said, and giving a speech to try to take down some of his opponents. That's exactly right, because in their absence, he has the big stage. And, yeah. you know, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence and others, maybe they think they're playing it safe themselves, not showing up at at CPAC when Matt Schlapp is the director is under has been credibly accused of a, a sexual offense. But look, at the end of the day, Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence don't get to the Republican nomination without going through CPAC. So yeah. this is an opportunity for Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence are going after the big donors this weekend. And, and Donald Trump seizes on Republican leadership activity like that. And it is eschewed by the base. We'll see what yeah. he does with it. And, and at the end of the day, Donald Trump's been accused 26 times, including of rape. <laughs> so, the, you know, Matt Schlapp, I mean, Matt right. Schlapp's is probably a bit more embarrassing for him, given the, the where the party is on, you know, anything that has to do with, with same sex. Uh, but he denies it. I should note that he denies it. But it, it's not as if that has ever stopped 
any Republican from named Donald Trump from rising before. So we'll see. We'll see. Uh, David Jolly, always appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. And Republican lawmaker in Florida is pitching a bill that would eliminate the Democratic Party in that state, (laughs) which is plenty hilarious already. But wait, but wait, there's more. And that's next. Republican in Florida, the state legislature has filed a bill that, if enacted, would eliminate the Florida Democratic Party. No, I'm serious. The Ultimate Cancel Act, and that is the bill's real name, would cancel the filings of any party that previously advocated for slavery, which the Democratic Party did more than 150 years ago. It's a performative move, toxic and deceptive, but it also serves as an educational opportunity to examine the fascinating story of our two major political parties. Now, usually I don't do this because Black History Month is over, but want to hear it? Here it goes. Back in the day, we're talking way back, the mid-19th century, to be exact, the Republicans were indeed the anti-slavery party. It was the Democrats of the South who wanted to preserve slavery and who opposed Republican Reconstruction legislation. It may sound a little disorienting, but basically the Republicans were the liberals, while Democrats were the staunch conservatives who wanted to remain slaveholders forever. As you can imagine, once the Civil War was over and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments gave black men the right to vote, at least on paper, black voters preferred and importantly voted essentially unanimously for the Republican Party. But over time, the parties flipped ideologies. They literally switched brands. The shift happened for many different reasons and took decades to complete. But in very simplistic terms, the Democrats, who remember were the conservatives, began to defect over their party's increasingly pro-civil rights platform. The shift was gradual, but punctuated by 20th century Democratic presidents, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who dramatically transformed the Democratic Party by launching the New Deal after the Great Depression. His successor, Harry Truman, who pushed to desegregate the military after World War II. John F. Kennedy, who shifted on civil rights after a series of violent attempts to integrate Southern universities. And Lyndon Baines Johnson, who signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, breaking the party's ties with Southern conservatism, the breakaway Dixiecrats, and white supremacy. By the time Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, conservatism was the prevailing ideology of the Republican Party, meaning Modern-day Republicans are nowhere near what they were 150 years ago, or even 50 years ago. But even with all this history in mind, there is another thing. Do not let today's Republicans trick you into thinking the pre-20th century Republican Party was free of racism. Remember, it was the Republicans back in the old days who were anti-slavery. So following emancipation, the party consisted of both white and black Americans. They literally called themselves the Black and Tans. But as the 1800s ended, some of those white Republicans weren't too happy about the gains made by their black counterparts and wanted to eliminate them. The Lily White movement emerged within the Republican Party as an organized effort to drive black folks out of party leadership. At the same time, black Americans were moving north in the Great Migration and their votes were being courted by big city Democrats. This happened in the waning days of Reconstruction when it began, which means white racist republicanism predates the 1960s. Racism is a complicated religion after all. The true story about our political parties, it is the stuff today's Republicans don't want you to learn. 
It's how they continue to lie and to gaslight and co-opt the abolitionist legacy of Abraham Lincoln. Which is why this bill in Florida to cancel the modern-day Democratic Party because Southern Democrats advocated for slavery during the Civil War is both dumb and anti-historical. It's also dangerous. If Florida Republicans had it their way with this bill, millions of Democratic voters would be notified that their party no longer exists. It would automatically change their voter registration to no party affiliation. Essentially, it's the legislative version of DeSantis's election police, disenfranchising mainly voters of color who would no longer be able to vote in the state's closed primaries. Even worse, this isn't the only message bill Republicans are cooking up to excite their base and own the libs. Florida is moving to expand the don't say gay law, this time waging a war against pronouns. Florida State Senator Sheffern Jones joins me next to try to explain. The Florida governor, who has a new book hilariously titled The Courage to be Free, (laughs) is doing whatever he can to restrict the freedoms of others. Ditto the state's Republicans. On Tuesday, a bill was filed that would prohibit schools from creating any policy calling for the use of the gender pronouns students or teachers prefer, other than the ones printed on their birth certificates. It would also require schools to go beyond just prohibiting woke politeness. It would require them to affirmatively adopt policies that assert that a person's sex is an immutable biological trait. An entirely unnecessary and gratuitously cheap shot at trans adults and kids who are already among the most bullied people in schools. I don't know, it kind of sounds more like the courage to be an unmitigated a-hole. The proposed law would also expand the don't say gay law, restricting topics related to sexual orientation and gender identity up to the eighth grade and adding restrictive guidelines through the 12th grade as well, extending the current limit on pre-K to third grade classrooms. Joining me now is Democratic State Senator Chevron Jones of Florida. Um, Let's talk about this. Um, The new don't say gay law, it, it kind of throws overboard the lie that was told to us previously that the only concern Republicans had was K through third grade. Now they're going up to 12th grade. Absolutely. Uh, And, George, we knew that this was going to happen. Um, Now they want to shift the conversation to talk about pronouns. In just one year, (laughs) under the Don't Say Gay bill, we've seen widespread damage. Children's books are being banned. Safe space stickers are being peeled from classroom windows. School districts are refusing to recognize LGBTQ History Month. Teachers are fleeing the profession. Families are wondering whether it's safe to stay here at all. And expanding the governor's agenda of censorship uh, will make it even worse than what we're seeing uh, seeing right now. And now you see what we have just what has just been filed in the legislature with this expansion because uh, they as they have polled their base and they want more. And so they're going to give their base more. You know, it's sort of ironic that this governor who required a safe space at his book signing such that they called the police on Trump supporters who just stood across from the books a million with their Trump T-shirts on. They literally had them arrested and carted away. So he needs a safe space to sign his little book. Right. They feel that their kids, that white kids need a safe space in school to never learn anything negative about Thomas Jefferson. Yet black kids, it's fine for black people to walk under statues of the former enslavers. They need to just get over that. But these they they seem to be so fragile. Has anyone you're in the Education Committee in the Senate. Has anyone explained what is so harmful if somebody wants to be called a certain gender pronoun, they want to be called she instead of he. What is the harm to children in that? 
There's no there's no harm at all. And as a matter of fact, we are in a time within Florida, even within Florida, the Florida legislature, where unfortunately the Republicans don't care who they hurt um, and and who's hurt by what they're who's hurt by what they're doing. Uh, and and it, all of this is uh, theater. That's happening because while this is happening, they are ignoring the real issues that need to be dealt with in Florida. Uh, one year after proclaiming themselves as the champions for parental rights, um, now we have these same politicians are now proposing um, that we revoke the rights of parents to decide how their children will be addressed at school. Uh, the same way that a trans mother fights for their child is the same way that a mother from Moms for Liberty wants to fight for, for, for their child. Uh, now you have one group who think that their voice is louder than the other while diminishing another voice. That's not parental rights. That's indoctrination within itself. Well, that's a great point, because if a parent says, I want my child to be addressed this way, what they're saying is, no, sorry, uh, parent, you don't get to make that decision. Ron DeSantis will decide what your child is called. It, it's the opposite of parental rights. But I do want to ask you about this other bill, the Ultimate Cancel Act, which this person who used to actually be the head of the, the Florida Democratic Party is proposing because he's like, well, you're trying to cancel our statues. The statues are of traitors who went to war against the United States. It would be like having statues of, Kirohi, of Emperor Kirohito here. We went to war against Japan. But they're saying we want these traitor statues here. And so if you don't want those, you don't want black folk to have to endure that, then we're going to cancel the whole Democratic Party. I mean, this would literally mean millions of Floridians would have no party affiliation and couldn't vote in primaries. Well, see, Joy, I'll be honest with you. See, they think it's Republican a game. Party. I'm sorry, he was the head of the Republican Party. Sorry. The Republican Party, right. Yes. I mean, they think it's a game. They think that they can they they can they can pick and choose and how they want to make fun, especially using slavery as their as their tool or their dangling carrot um, to, to say that this is the legislation that uh, that they're pushing. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, people, one, understand that this is unconstitutional. Two, they just had a, an election in with the Republicans in Florida and their new chair just made it clear that we are going to work until we eliminate every Democrat uh, in the state of Florida. And so all they're doing is following everything that they, they that they said that they're going to do. Is it right? It's not right. It's dead wrong. Uh, and all they're doing is filtering. I'll keep saying it. All they're doing is filtering into a base. Don't care who it hurts. Don't care how unorganized it is. And don't care who, who those who have to run it, what they have to put in place to be able to fight against these very things that they're doing. Yeah, I mean, uh, listen, I mean, they've already the governor has installed a Proud Boys supporter on the school board in Broward County, Democratic Broward County, which through a wormhole I was in this morning is named after uh, a, a man whose name was Broward, Napoleon Bonaparte Broward, who happened to be a Republican segregationist. And there you have it. It's why you need education. Florida State Senator Severin Jones, good luck uh, uh, fighting these folks. I appreciate you. Uh, and up next, a stunning defeat for Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot as she becomes the first incumbent Windy City mayor in 40 years to lose a bid for re-election. One of her opponents, who now heads to a runoff, joins me next. I told you back then that anything is possible with hard work. And I want you to know that no matter what happens along the way, you should always believe that because it's true. Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high. In the Chicago mayoral election, Lori Lightfoot failed to make it to the runoff, becoming the first Chicago mayor in 40 years to lose re-election. Lightfoot, a black queer woman, took office with high expectations after she was elected in 2019 on a progressive platform. 
but her handling of COVID-19 and social unrest after George Floyd caused progressives to become disillusioned with her, most notably for her reaction to the 2022 teacher strike, in which she told teachers who were concerned about COVID safety to get real and get back to class in person. Chicago also experienced a spike in crime during her term, similar to the rest of the country, which made her vulnerable to attacks from the right. As Ross Barkan points out in The New Yorker, Lightfoot alienated just about every ideological faction in Chicago. Left-leaning organizations and local leaders viewed the mayor with increasing skepticism, portraying her as a pro-police neoliberal. She managed to feud almost equally with two influential unions that hold starkly different political views, the Chicago Teachers Union, which is left-wing, and the city's police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, which is headed by a proud Donald Trump supporter. The police order endorsed Paul Vallis, who centered his campaign on crime, with the teachers' union backing progressive Brandon Johnson. Those two candidates won the most votes yesterday and will advance to the runoff next month. And Brandon Johnson joins me now. Um, congratulations. Um, this was a, an historic shift uh, that normally is, doesn't the, this isn't the way it goes. Uh, but you are now one of two people who's going to go into the runoff. Very quickly, what do you think the disillusionment with Lori Lightfoot was mainly about. Yeah, thanks for having me tonight, Joy. You know, look, I started my um, professional career as a public school teacher here in the city of Chicago, uh, teaching seventh and eighth graders. It's still the best job that I've ever had, uh, teaching in uh, Cabrini Green, USA, uh, a neighborhood and a community that I believe people around the country will be familiar with. And um, mm -hmm. as I've worked to become an organizer in the city of Chicago, pushing for education justice and fighting for workers' rights, um, you know, Mayor Lori Lightfoot four years ago made history by embracing the very movement um, that uh, made her election and candidacy possible. And then unfortunately, she was a disappointment because she abandoned all of the progressive um, um, promises that she made. And clearly the city of Chicago is uh, ready to turn the page uh, yeah. on her and actually connect to someone who is def definitely uh, tethered to the movement. The, the way that this race played out, I mean, there were six African-American candidates, including yourself. There was Chuy Garcia, who a lot of people sort of remember. He was the one Latino candidate and there was the one white candidate, uh, Mr. Vallis. It is you and Vallis who will now go head to head. Crime is a major issue um, on, at least according to the reporting, right, of what people were thinking about. You have a lot of African-American middle-class folks moving out of Chicago due to things like, you know, uh, discrimination, um, uh, law and order issues, um, you know, multiple issues causing people to leave. Um, and then you also have a lot of, you know, white Chicagoans who are complaining about crime. But the, 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 the crime rate increase, it's not even across communities. It's not evil, e even across racial communities. Your campaign has said that your tack on that is to cut $150 million from the police budget, tax the rich for a billion dollars in new spending on schools, transportation, health care, mental health and job creation. That is your campaign platform. Paul Vallis, who the Fraternal Order of Police is backing, his tack is to call it an utter breakdown of law and order. And his whole campaign is about taking back our city. He plans to take the handcuffs off police officers to stop raising criminals. That sends a, an alarm bell in, I think, a lot of black folks' heads. But your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, public safety is um, top of mind of many people. 
my wife and I were raising our three ki- children on the west side of Chicago in the uh, dynamic neighborhood of the Austin community, uh, one of the largest concentration of black folks around the country. And though we love our community, it is one of the more uh, violent neighborhoods in the entire city of Chicago. And so um, we experienced this firsthand, raising three children there. And so um, between me and my opponent, um, no one has a greater incentive for the city of Chicago to be safe um, than someone who is raising a family under those circumstances. Look, the bottom line is, is that Paul Vallis um, in the 90s was in charge of the budget of the Chicago Public Schools and had budgetary um, uh, leadership within the city government. And we are in the economic uh, crisis that we are experiencing right now because of um, his failures. In fact, I was in high school at the time in which um, he blew the budget, but he did it in Philadelphia. Um, he did it in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, shutting down schools, um, uh, the loss of black educators under his uh, reign. Um, he's been an absolute nightmare. But this is someone who was also identified uh, with the extreme right wing. Um, once President Obama, uh, the first black president, was elected, um, he said he identified more as a Republican. Uh, he said he was fundamentally opposed uh, to reproductive rights and abortion. Um, here's someone who has been embraced by leadership um, that has been supportive of the January 6th um, insurrection. So um, he certainly uh, represents the most extreme aspect of the political dynamic in this in, throughout the country. I, on the other hand, um, I'm doing what works. Um, the safest cities in America all have one thing in common, Joy, and what that is is they invest in people. And so what my budget plan does, which is balanced, I'm the only person who actually released one, um, having passed multi-billion dollar budgets on the county board, um, we get at the root causes of, of violence in the city of Chicago while also dealing with the immediate crisis. And we do that by promoting uh, rank and file members to become detectives, 200 more. We do it by spending to make sure that the consent decree that this administration has ignored um, is um, administered with all due expediency. But we also make sure that we hire young people. Um, there's a great predictor of violence reduction throughout the country. Young people working. Um, is the greatest predictor to drive down violence. And so that's what my plan is committed to doing. It's ultimately a plan that invests in people because that's what safe American cities do all over the country. And I know that as a teacher, as an organizer, and of course now as a Cook County Commissioner. And do you, are you concerned that this sort of breakdown over the crime issue will become as sort of racially an, uh, polarized in an ugly way as it has in other cities during the campaign? Well, well, there's certainly been a whole lot of dog whistling here. And so, yeah. you know, look, you know, you know, painting um, a public school teacher, um, you know, in a certain light is something that, of course, that the, you know, extreme right wing, of course, has embraced. But as a progressive Democrat, um, I'm mm-hmm. definitely committed to making sure that we're doing we do what works. And, you know, again, um, investing in lives and in young people is the best thing that we can do, making sure that we are providing mental health yeah. services to deal with the trauma around uh, the city of Chicago. That's what I'm committed mm-hmm. to doing. All right. Well, we wish you luck. Uh, please come back. Chicago mayoral candidate Brandon Johnson. Thank you. And we should note we did invite candidate Paul Vallis on the show as well. We look forward to talking to him. That is tonight's readout.